let's look at God's word together. Turn to the book of Galatians. We're doing our series in Galatians that I've titled Breaking Free. Breaking Free. And what we're going to see this time in this passage in chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, is Peter being embarrassed by the gospel. Peter, of all people, the apostle Peter, yes, that guy, and Barnabas, being embarrassed by the gospel. And you think, how could those guys be embarrassed by the gospel? Didn't Peter finally get it whenever he was forgiven by Christ? Yes, but fear grabbed his heart. You know, it's easy for us to be embarrassed by grace, embarrassed by the gospel of Christ. And so we find ourselves in situations where we should speak up and we don't. And then we kick ourselves or feel badly about ourselves for not speaking up. Well, you're in good company. Peter did it, so did Barnabas. They got rebuked by Paul, but that they, they did fall into that camp. And I think about that in our own lives, how many times it's easy for us to, to, to withhold or not feel bold. And, and in fact, we find Paul in the scriptures asking for boldness. So even Paul needed boldness to speak. Why is it so hard to speak up? Why is it so easy to become embarrassed by the gospel? Because it doesn't make sense to our world. We, in most of our relationships with one another, are economic we hold each other to a standard, and I'll love you if you love me, and if you don't treat me right, then I don't treat you right, and if you're mean or unkind, then I'll be mean, unkind. It's, it's the source of so many conflicts in marriage, isn't it? That we hold each other to law rather than grace, and yet great marriages, long-lasting marriages are, are lived by grace, or have a whole lot of forgiveness as a part of them. And if you have that kind of marriage, you understand what that's like. But if you hold each other to a standard and you're looking at each other and judging each other, you find yourselves wanting to resist the other person. And that's the way law works. It doesn't drive us toward righteousness. It drives us away. How many times, in fact, I remember in, in college seeing these signs that says, keep off the grass. And there was a path going up to the sign around both sides and kept going on in the grass. And you're looking at that going, maybe they should just put a sidewalk here because everybody's just using that as the path, right? And it's like uh, uh, you see the speed limit sign. What does that speed limit sign when it say, uh, mean when it says 40 miles an hour? I would say most of you, it means 45, right? You don't have to raise your hands. I'm not asking for that. No conviction time here. But you look at it and you realize... The law causes us to want to break it. It reveals in us this desire to not do it. But an interesting thing about law, because we put a whole lot in law. We, in fact, I, I bet that probably many of us have said, uh, if we just had more laws and better laws in this country, we would have a better country. Okay, let's think about that for a minute. What's the purpose of law? The purpose of law is to reveal that I failed it and to expose that in front of the public and then to pronounce a penalty for that, a punishment. So you go to a law court and they don't say, oh, well, here's, here's some nice ways that you, you know, here's 10 easy ways that you can make your life better. They're going, you're guilty and you're going to serve this amount of time. That's what law does. It doesn't fix anything. It just reveals sin. 
That's what the law of the Old Testament did too. It just reveals sin. It doesn't fix it. And we'll see Paul hammering that point home today. That law is the x-ray machine. It reveals the broken bone. It won't fix the broken bone. That machine can't do anything to fix it. You need a doctor. And the doctor comes along and cures. So what do you need spiritually? The law of God reveals sin. It's the tutor that brings us to the cure, which is Christ. Christ is the cure. Law only reveals that we need a cure. Here's why we're embarrassed by grace. Is that in order to receive Christ's grace, I have to admit that I'm a sinful person. And people don't want to take blame. We don't want to take blame. We want to assign blame. And we see it in our culture. Insurance companies see it all the time. Uh, uh, people that are in uh, police officers, they see it all the time where, where people don't want to take the blame. They're blaming somebody else. And so you realize that, that in our culture, in our, we, we don't like blame. We want to all be okay. And so sin, if I admit that I'm a sinner, then that means that I have to admit that I've got some issues going on and that I need a solution. And that solution is Christ. And we don't want to go there. We don't like that. None of us likes to take blame, but the reality is every one of us is born into sin. Every one of us is sinful. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. None of us seeks after God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we fall short. We fail. But God, instead of sitting in judgment of us, which he does, he does judge that sin, he also provides a way. And that way is salvation. And that salvation is provided by Jesus Christ. And it's provided in the gospel, which Paul starts out this book with in Galatians. In verse 4, he says, who gave himself for our sins. A lot of theology in those phrases. Who gave free gift. We don't earn it, not by merit, not by something we do. It's a gift of God. He gave himself, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He, he's of, of the line of David. He was the perfect sacrifice, an unspotted, unspot, uh, unblemished lamb of God, which John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ gave himself. The word for as a substitute in our place. Substitutionary atonement, theological big phrase, simply defined for, for us in our place, for our sins. And so we have to admit, I'm a sinful person in need of Jesus Christ, in need of salvation, that I can't merit on my own, and that Jesus has provided for me at no cost by his death, paying the cost. No cost to me, great cost to him. And provided salvation to anyone who believes. So when I believe, and we talked about that up there, we were singing, I believe, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me in my place. I believe that he gives salvation away to those who will believe It's provided for us, and that's what Paul's hitting here. He's saying that's the gospel. 
And he says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And what was this different gospel? What was happening was that, that they were in a city of Antioch. And we see that, in fact, we pick up the story here in Galatians 2.11. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. And I don't think he was saying, I opposed him to his face. You're not saying it like that. I think he's saying, I came personally, face to face with Peter. I said, Peter, what's going on? What's happening here? You're giving in to the gospel. Or you're giving, you're giving up the gospel. You're giving in to, to your fears at this point. And we'll talk about that. We'll see that and read that. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about Antioch. Why is Antioch important? When persecution happened in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, if you remember 8-1 and 1-8, you got the book of Acts. Acts 1-8, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth. What? Locally, globally. It's basically what he's saying. That's why I believe in global missions, where it's global and local, that we'll do stuff here, we'll do stuff afar. We'll work with Ecuador, but we'll also work with Feed the Children here in our own schools on either side of us. That we'll minister in the community on Community Outreach Sunday, and we'll do 140 projects. We do all these different things because, because of what Acts 1-8 says. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth. And you see... The new believers having a great time loving on one another. All the first seven chapters, well, not chapter seven where Stephen is, is killed. But then chapter eight, one is very telling because it says, and persecution came about and they went, they scattered to Judea, Samaria. Oops, it took persecution to break them out to do what God had asked them to do in Acts 1.8. And the whole rest of the book of Acts is ministry in Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth. That's the outline of the book. And you look at that and you realize, wow, here's, a, here's, here's persecution that was required to get them to do what they were supposed to do. And they went, some of them went to Antioch in this persecution, Acts 11. Verse 19 says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, chapter 7 of Acts, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Interestingly, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And so all of a sudden you get the picture, there's this... Revival happening in Antioch and, and people in Jerusalem are hearing about it and so they send a representative that's part of them, Barnabas, and a son of encouragement and they send him. It says, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. He doesn't say evidence of law. He says evidence of the grace of God. People believing in the Lord Jesus. It says, he was glad and encouraged uh, them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That word encourages. He was the son of encouragement. So that was, he was using his giftedness. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So apparently he was evangelizing as well. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. In other words, I need help. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. 500,000 people called it home. And for 500 years, it was one of the top five places between Rome, Constantinople, uh, Antioch, and a couple of other places that were uh, key points for the spread of the gospel. In fact, Antioch, they were first called Christians there. Antioch, first missions that we have recorded, came from Antioch. It was that church that set apart Barnabas and Saul to go out and to go on the three missionary journeys. It was the church at Antioch that sent Paul and, and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to provide for the famine that had happened in that whole area of Palestine. They were a very wealthy church as well. God really used the church of Antioch. This was not an insignificant place. It's small wonder why Satan decided, decided to attack the church at Antioch and to try to get them confused about the gospel. Uh, and that's what we see. He says, in verse 11, chapter 2 of Galatians says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, and we're not sure who those were. James is probably uh, referring to James, the brother of Jesus, who was the uh, leader of the church of uh, Jerusalem. It says, He used to eat, that's key, circle that. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter, Barnabas, both led astray. Why? Because of fear. Since he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And we know when he says that, what he's referring to. Those who said... You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. How do I know that? Acts chapter 15. The first general council of the church. It says some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Same place that we're talking about. And were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses. You cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And so the, all of chapter 15 of the book of Acts is dealing with this question. Do the Gentiles need to follow the law? Starting with circumcision and and the eating process, all the things that you can eat and not eat, the law declared certain foods unclean, and so other, food, other foods were clean to eat. And so we know, if I, I told you, circle that word, eat. He says he used to eat with the Gentiles, so it's about eating, it's about circumcision, it's about keeping the law. And so he was struggling with that, he was asking that question, and, and so you see, um, Peter shouldn't have been struggling with it. Peter should have known better. Because in Acts chapter 10, if you remember him going to Cornelius' house on the coast of the Mediterranean, he's, he's going to Cornelius' house, and as he's getting ready to go, God gives him a vision, and this vision of this large sheet come down, and the, and the, and the sheet had a bunch of, uh, of creatures on it. In fact, you see uh, in Acts 10, 11, it says, He saw heaven opened. 
And something like a large sheet being let down to the earth it's by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter said. I have never eaten anything impure and unclean. He's referring to the law. 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So you would think that Peter would know better. That he had this vision. He, he was, he, uh, because he ate at Cornelius' house, he had the chance to share the gospel. And when he shared the gospel, Cornelius and his whole household came to faith. So Peter should know better. Why did he fall into this hypocrisy? It's because he was afraid. Fear leads us to do a lot of different things. When I came to Christ, I was 17 years old. I was a first-year student at the University of Texas. And my first summer, I went to a summer training program. And during that program, I, I learned how to study the Bible better. I memorized God's Word. I, I remember reading Shadow of the Almighty about the, the five missionaries that were killed by the Auk Indians. And guess where that is? Ecuador. Here, over 40 years later, I'm getting to go to Ecuador on repeated trips. It's just amazing to me how that started, and it's kind of interesting how God brought that about. But I, I, I grew in Christ, and I was so moved by his walk, and I, I grew so much that summer. And, and during the next year, continued to memorize God's word and continued to share my faith. And then that next summer, my second summer, I went home. And I worked in the oil fields near Abilene. And I was on a pipe testing crew. We would take this truck full, filled with water and we would go and we'd fill up these pipes that they had taken out of the hole and we would fill, we'd plug up both ends, fill them with water, put pressure on them. And if they busted at a certain pressure, then we marked them. If they didn't, we put them in the good pile. And I was around a lot of really rough folks. And I fell back into some of my old habits, some of my old ways. And I'm not real proud of that summer. And I look back at that summer and think, how did that happen? I was on fire for the Lord. I'd come to Christ. And then one summer, I fall back into some old ways. And, and, and the reality is that's a big part of my background as the oil field. My grandfather was involved in the oil field and was a, a guy who, who did a lot of investing and, and, and owned an oil field supply store for a time. And, and, and my, my dad was involved in the oil field and I went on rigs with him and was around roughnecks and, and, and a geologist and all sorts of different people. And, and, and some were, were very rough, some of the roughest people that you'll meet. And so that brought me back to, to that part of my life. I, I have that side of me, and, and it was what Christ saved me out of. And I think, how did I easily, so easily slip back? It's easy to do. Because we're either afraid or we're hesitant to speak up. And, and that summer really got used to help me to realize those next summers I needed to really be different. And so those next summers, the next three summers, I worked for a moving company during my, between semesters and uh, during, during the summer breaks. And I, and I, I remember I, I shared my faith a lot during that time with the different guys that I worked with. 
And I built these relationships over three summers as I saw them again and the same guys working there and they saw me as this college boy and, uh, that didn't know what, he's, what he was doing and, and yet I shared my faith. And I remember one, uh, one of the guys uh, was always trying to you know, mess with me and, and he didn't take seriously my faith in Christ and, and, he, and he was pushing the envelope and would try to get me to say things or do things or see things that I didn't want to do. And, and I, and I re- remember one, that third summer and we had a good relationship, a good friendship, uh, but I always had to kind of be careful of that one side of him. And, and uh, he, I remember he was pulling a chair out and he banged his hand on the top of the truck and he let out some cussing and one of those was the Lord's name in vain. And I just kind of lost it momentarily, but it was in a good way. I, I uh, or so I think I, I, I just looked at him. I said, I don't appreciate you taking my Lord's name in vain. I said, I would never say that about your wife, anything like that about your wife, whom you love dearly, and I dearly love the Lord. And I just grabbed the chair and walked off this truck and went in the house and put the chair up and came back. And his first words were, we're still friends, aren't we? I said, yeah, we're still friends. I said, but I don't, I, I don't think you realize how much I love the Lord. It's not a religious thing that I do. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I, and I shared the gospel again. I don't know if he ever came to Christ, but I know he treated the gospel very different after that, and he treated me very differently after that. He took seriously what I was talking about. And I think that there are times that we need to have a boldness to speak up for the Lord, and, and, and sometimes God uses a failure to remind us of that, that no, the Lord is worth speaking up about, and he, he freed me from that lifestyle, and I, I don't know why I slipped back into it for that summer. But I don't ever want to go back there. And it's always a reminder. Don't, I don't want to go there. I don't ever want to slip back there. I want to live for him. Well, that's what we see Peter doing. He kind of slips back here. And yet, uh, in fact, Paul says in verse 14, he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In the, the phrase in line there, we get our word orthopedic from. It's the Greek word that's, uh, uh, we get our word orthopedic, and it, it's, it's being in line. It's, it's taking the, the, with the right foot, uh, especially focused on that, taking that right foot and stepping rightly, stepping in the right direction. In line with what? With the gospel. I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He already told us what that is, gave himself for our sins, but they are not living that way. You see, the gospel isn't just something that gets me into heaven and then I leave it behind. The gospel is what I believe and it's believing on Jesus Christ. And then when I live the Christian life, I live the whole Christian life believing on Jesus Christ. Living for him, trusting him. The life I live, I live by faith, he says later in the passage. I live by faith. I don't live by works. I don't live by law. We do a lot of good things in this community as a church. It'd be easy for us to fall back and say, look at all these things we've done. We feed kids on either side of the schools, 25 kids we provide for. During the summer, we provide for kids that, that don't, aren't able to feed themselves or don't have a lot of, enough food. That we, we help feed them through the, the, the summer months, about 25 of those. 
operation, uh, uh, community outreach. We get a chance to, to reach twice a year the, our community for, for Christ and to love on our community and to open the doors for the gospel. And we do it on a Sunday morning, and we, we have a great turnout of folks. Uh, we have uh, 1,400 at the last one with 140 projects, and now there are, there are at least two other churches that have joined uh, that have, have seen what we're doing, and they said, we need to do that, and they're, they're doing that as well. And so it's beginning to grow. It's beginning to expand. We get involved with Operation Christmas Child, and we fill boxes, and they go all over the world. We minister in places like Ecuador and, and through our missionaries in Brazil and, and India. In India, they're facing a lot of persecution. And I, and I look at that and I think, here we do all these things, but that's not what gets me into heaven. That's not what sets me right with God. What sets me right with God is simple faith in Christ. Because I can do all the good in the world and that doesn't undo even one sin that I commit. It's like a person who's a murderer. And I mentioned this last time. A murderer can, can only commit the one murder and he can go before the judge. Hey, I only committed the one murder. I'm normally a good citizen of this world and this community. I mean, I, I give to my church and I, I help people in the community and I, I help widows and orphans and, and I do all these good things, but I only committed the one murder. Well, I got to pay for the one murder. It doesn't matter what else I've done. And the thing about the law is it only exposes that I've done it and it only pronounces judgment. And so what's the pronounced judgment for me for one sin? Whether it's a little white lie, whether it's being unkind, whether it's denying Christ, what's the judgment for that? Death. Well, that's pretty severe. Yeah, it is. But Christ paid for that death by his death. His death is in place of my death. So that his life, when I believe in him, he, he imputes to me, he gives to me righteousness. He gives to me forgiveness of sins. It's a simple thing, but yet it's a profoundly powerful. And, and Paul really hits on this. He goes on in verse 15 and says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified. Now let me stop on that word there because you look at that word and say, what does that mean? Declared not guilty. Doesn't mean made not guilty. Declared not guilty. I can be very guilty, stand before the judge, and he goes, you're guilty, but I declare you, bam, not guilty. That's what God does. And how does he declare me not guilty? Because somebody has chosen to stand in your place. If you were standing before a judge and you had this huge penalty that you were going to have to pay 20 years in prison and I walk up and say, I'll take those 20 years for you. And the judge allowed me to do that. That's what Jesus did. He took our place. He didn't just die. He took our place. And he paid for our sins. And that's why Paul goes on. He says, know that, uh, verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith. So declared not guilty happens when I believe on what? Not just believe in God, not just believe in a higher power. I believe on Jesus. Jesus is the key. By faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one 
will be justified. Well, that raises a question. You think, so if I put my faith in Christ and it's not based on me, then can I just live however I want to? That's what they're asking. Verse 17, it says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does, this, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? He says, absolutely not. In Romans, he tells us, why would you want to go back to that life? I think about my second year in college, and I think second summer, why did I want to go back to that? That he freed me from. Says absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, in other words, if I go into a situation and I mess something up and I fix it, if I pull out of your driveway and I hook the, the, the railing and, and bend it, and then I'm over there trying to straighten it up, hopefully not before you come and see it, <laughs> but I'm trying to straighten it up, I'm trying to fix it, it just reveals that I'm, I'm, I'm a lawbreaker. I, I broke something, I failed at something. And that's what he says. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And then he gives this famous verse that many of us know. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. His death was pointless if I can somehow be righteous on my own. If I can somehow earn God's favor and grace by my own merit. Christ had to die because I could not experience forgiveness. I could not undo. A guy who is a murderer and murders someone and who... Does pays his debt to society? Does he really pay his debt to society? No, the person's still murdered. He gets out, but the person that's, that's dead is still dead. He doesn't really solve it. Only forgiveness resolves it. And so only forgiveness by God, and he offers that freely when we receive Jesus. It comes through Jesus. That's how he set it up. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. When we don't put our faith in Jesus, we don't have forgiveness of sins. And if I don't have forgiveness of sins, that means when I die, I go to hell. If I have forgiveness of sins, when I die, I go to be with him in heaven. It's simple. It's straightforward. And that's what Paul's saying. He says it's easy to slip past that. It's easy to, to, to get embarrassed by that message because there are words that stick in our throat in our day. The word hell sticks in our throat. The word sin sticks in our throat. The sin, the, even the word Jesus sticks in our throat. And the reality is, the grace of God is why we stand in relationship to him. And only that. And when we receive Christ, it changes and transforms us. So that we can live a different life. So that when I plan a trip to Ecuador. I'm not planning this trip so I can become more righteous and so that I can have another feather in my cap. I'm planning this trip because God's led me to do it. And I'm walking by faith, trusting him to provide for that trip. I don't know how it's all going to work out. And every time it seems to work out and I'm just, I, as I watch how God does it, it just blows me away. We're walking by faith. Plan the trip by faith, walk by faith. When, my, when I moved my mom here, for the last four and a half years of her life, 
I didn't know how to take care of mom. I didn't know how to take care of someone at that phase of their life who had uh, uh, dementia, who didn't always know what she was doing, but, but I wanted to show her respect and yet love and yet take care of her and protect her and provide for her. It was a faith journey those whole four and a half years knowing, Lord, help me to know when I'm supposed to take the next step. And God was very clear about making these steps known to me as a, a walk by faith. Yeah, I, I got some insights from other people, but it's, it's a faith journey. Everything that we do in life can either be a journey and a walk with God, or we can just try to do it on our own. And I can tell you what, it's more exciting when you do it with the Lord. When you live by faith and you watch his hand at work, when you watch God provide uh, through, through a lunch uh, uh, last year for $2,500, when you watch God provide now through, uh, through an estate sale and, and, and watch what God does, we see his hand at work. And it builds your faith like nothing else. Father, we come before you right now and we praise you for who you are that you're a God who cares deeply about us, that you're our Abba, you're our Father, you're our Daddy, which is what Abba means. It's really Dada in the Hebrew, Abba. What a little child would say to their daddy, first words, or second, if they say Mama first, first words in their mouth, Abba. We come to you, our Abba, our Daddy, our Heavenly Father. And we thank you that you've loved us with such an incredible love. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here today and have not responded to you yet. They haven't put their faith in Christ. Father, I pray that they would respond to you. That they would simply say, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe he gave himself for my sins. And right now I receive him as my savior. Maybe not those exact words, but something along those lines. Pray that they would respond. I receive Christ. Receive your free offer of salvation. Father, I pray that we would not just start our lives with the gospel, but live our lives by the gospel. You're still giving to us in so many ways, and it's still by faith that we live our lives and are sanctified and become pure and righteous and holy and obedient. It's a faith walk. It's a faith journey. Help us, Lord. Father, I pray this week that you would reveal one or two places where that's not happening. Where we're not living by faith. Father, help us not to just live by faith when we do a project for the church and then go to work and live by something else, some other standard. I pray that Christ would be central in the home, at work, at church, as we relate to people who serve uh, us our meals, Father, I pray that we would be those who share our faith by our words and by how we live. Father, we're not perfect and we know it, but you are. 
Help us to live by your grace, your forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.